and welcome to Pod Catalyst. I'm Peter Finn, Executive Director at IABC or the International Association of Business Communicators. For this episode, I spoke with Martha Mazuchka. Martha is an award-winning communicator and policy researcher with more than 30 years experience. Operating as Praxis Communications since 2005, she brings together a unique community perspective with a firm foundation and strategic communications principles. Her clients include large and small organizations in Newfoundland and Labrador and across Canada from government, nonprofit, community, and private sectors. Martha's work and contributions to communications excellence and IABC have been recognized locally through the IABC Newfoundland and Labrador Communicator of the Year in 2018 and as an IABC Canada Master Communicator in 2015. In 2019, Martha became an IABC Fellow, receiving the highest honor that IABC bestows on its members. And she is currently Chair of the IABC Fellows Selection Committee. It was a pleasure to speak with Martha, learning more about her background and the work that she does and what she's done for IABC. And, and specifically, we talked about the IABC Fellow Selection Committee and what is now a, uh, the nominations are now open for fellows. But really appreciate the discussion. I think you'll enjoy it. Martha has a, a really interesting background. So Martha, thanks so much for joining me on Pi Catalyst. I think we've spoken before a couple times, but uh, yeah, just I think you know, one of the things I usually kick off with is just you know, your background. And I know that I think you have more than 30 years of experience in the field and nearly 20 years where you're the principal for Praxis, which is a company that you founded in 2005. So I guess just, you know, I'd love to hear more about your background and your entrepreneurial path. Okay. Well, I actually started off going to university wanting to do journalism. And I was part of the student newspaper. And then I went to Carleton University in Ottawa, the capital city of Canada. So it was a great place to study journalism. And when I came out of school, there actually was a big labor deficit, if you will, in journalism. And I moved back home to Newfoundland. And I got a call one day from a former colleague who said, come and interview for a job as a social policy researcher. So I said, sure, why not? It was an area that I was interested in, public advocacy, working for a women's organization. They hired me. And while I would say half of the work was policy research, the other half was clearly communications, working with various stakeholders, communicating and advocating on different issues that were current at the time. And I actually spent 10 years in that role before I moved into public health communications and did that in 1987 was when I first started as a policy researcher. And then in 1997, I moved into public health. There, I did primarily communications and looking at public health education, working with different media, did a cable television series also set up and coordinated a weekly column for the daily paper on uh, public health issues, facilitating writing amongst different departments, because we went from 200 people to 600 to almost 900 with various amalgamations. So I also got exposed to a lot of crisis communications and change management communications along with the public health awareness. Certainly SARS was the big thing. 
and also becoming part of IABC and seeing how the conference in Toronto was affected by that global event. I mean, there's certainly a lot of learning took away from that to apply to the pandemic we just experienced. So I really enjoyed that work. And then in 2004, 2005, we learned that they were going to amalgamate. We had 16 health boards and they collapsed that to four regional health authorities. Sadly, I was one of the people who was let go and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. A lot of the jobs available in communications at that time were primarily entry level. And by this point, I already had almost 20 years in. So I thought, well, you know, I'll work as a consultant for a while until a really good job comes along and we'll see what happens. And about two years in, I realized this was a really good job and I've been doing it ever since. And uh, so I formed my company in fall 2005 and it's been steady go since. I really enjoy it because of the variety and I enjoy my clients and the kinds of challenges and great ideas they come to me to help them develop or solve an issue or create a possible solution. And I have to say, it's also a boatload of fun. So I worked with a colleague once who said, when it stops being fun, you should stop doing it. And so far that hasn't happened yet. So I'm just going to keep on going. That's great. You know, anytime you can describe work as a boatload of fun, that's a win. So in your role right now, like what are you seeing as some of the common challenges for organizations? Well, even with the pandemic, it was consistent. I work a lot with nonprofits, both in communications and strategic planning, not-for-profits in, in Canada, and I imagine it's similar in the United States and other parts of the world where there are NGOs, non-government organizations you're always having to do more with less money, less people, less resources in terms of capacity. And so a lot of my work actually is about building that capacity in organizations. They can't afford a full-time communications person. I will build a program for them, help them develop a plan, and also build in that capacity so that you know when my job is done, they can keep going. That's becoming more challenging because we also have a lot of competing platforms for communications. I mean, when I first started to deliver a press release, we literally got into a car, one person drove, the other person hopped out and hand-delivered the news release yeah. to the different media outlets. Yeah. Then we got faxes, which I thought was an absolute genius invention, but that was, you know, one news release at a time and then we were able to broadcast news releases and I thought that was the bee's knees and lo and behold we now have email we have a whole bunch of social media channels that people can share their ideas and not just externally but we're also accessing those tools internally and people are finding it you know, I used to think we were bombarded with a lot of messages, but now it's relentless. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you look at. There might be an advertisement. It might be a promotion. It might be, you know, a call for action, depending on who you're following. Or it can just be whatever gets served up, because that's what the algorithms decide is going to be the priority that day. So helping people navigate what their priorities are, who they should be talking to, identifying their key audiences, and investing where they can in collecting information that will help them make good decisions about where to direct 
and how they want to present the information they want people to use to either make decisions or understand an issue or take a particular action. So I think from the multiplicity of platforms that you can talk to people or reach people, trying to make the best decision there is a challenge. Having to do more with less is consistently a challenge. But of course, different sectors are benefiting more or less from what's been happening with the pandemic. But in the not-for-profit sector, you know, the funding is still a challenge. So that makes it hard. And I think people are realizing that the issues they're working on, they're not black and white. They're not straightforward. There's a lot of complexity that you have to address. And we're looking at broader examination of issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. We're looking at the kinds of language we use to describe those issues. We're trying to understand how different places may inform or prescribe a particular approach. And when you have to make some quick decisions or informations that might not be based on complete information, that can create some reputational issues because what we see now with those multiplicity of platforms is huge risks around reputation, being able to respond, being able to act in ways that are both swift, but also take into account analysis and some thoughtful consideration. Yes, we need to have responses to things, but do we need to have them 30 minutes from now? And there's often a great pressure to push out information quickly without taking some time to consider what might be the fallout or the consequences of one approach versus another. Yeah. In, you know, just through your career, do you feel that the skill set that many IABC members and those that are communication practitioners, that skill set is more valued than it was, say, 10 years ago? Or is it more sort of maybe specific to industry, certain industries? What's your sense of that? I mean, it's maybe a tough question to answer. Well, I think people come to communications through different routes. And my route was initially going to be, you know, I wanted to be a journalist. So I have that kind of mindset. A reporter colleague once said to me, you know, when I get your news releases, I'm frustrated because there isn't anything else that I need to add or change to make it a news story. It already is, which I considered a very high compliment. But I think the professionalization of communications in terms of understanding how people receive information, looking at different audience characteristics, I mean, that's something that a lot of people never used to think about. You know, how do you present information to respect where different audiences are? Often when I review, for example, goal quill submissions or other award submissions, people will talk to their target audience as the general public. And so when I've mentored people who are submitting for awards, I say, well, you know, the general public is zero to, you know, 100 years. Are you sure? Like, how do you talk to a six month old? And they kind of go like, oh, well, we're not really, you know, and I said, so it's not a general public, you know, you're looking at. And so they start thinking more critically and strategically about who they need to talk to. So they're trying to reach parents to inform them about a new immunization program. Well, you go to where the parents can be found, a daycare, a kindergarten, maybe it's a local church play group, but you try to find the connections to reach the particular audience that you need to have. And I think the whole approach around measurement 
and understanding why something worked or didn't work and then how you go about taking those steps for improvement is really significant because it's just not enough to say we execute a plan, but how did we actually know that we performed and achieved what we set out to do? You know, did we change people's minds? Did we increase a particular uptake of you know, an approach. And I think back to some of the stuff that was done in the Second World War to encourage people to create victory gardens or to buy bonds. Or if we look in Canada, a big program in the 70s was participation to try and increase people's physical fitness so that we can see those outcomes and we can measure them. And then we have tools to directly attribute that change to the particular communication or the call to action that we made in that plan. And I think people don't often understand that component of communications outside of people who are working in the field. They just see oh, lovely campaign, that's great, we've got this many distributions or upticks in actual product or whatever. But when we're looking at how do we change minds in the long term and how do we support people making informed decisions, that's where measurement is going to tell the story. And I think for IBC, that's one of the biggest takeaways I ever took when I first joined the organization was how valuable it was to acquire that knowledge and the tools to implement because I had access to that information through the different resources IBC produced. I had access to amazing people who presented at conferences who freely said, hey, get in touch if you have a question. And then being able to see the kind of work that other people were doing through Goldquill and through different profiles in communication world and Catalyst and so on. It really makes a difference when you can be a part of a collaborative organization that promotes excellence in communications because you do absorb that. And I think that encourages me and supports my goals in making sure that what I give my clients is the best possible approach based on strategy and evaluation. Yeah. And you mentioned Goldquill and we're approaching the Goldquill season for submissions. And you mentioned measurement. But yeah, just curious, what are, you know, I know you've been a long time evaluator, some of the things that you look for in the submission and what elevates those submissions to ultimately being award winners. Goldquill winners that achieve the excellence and even those who achieve merit consistently have really strong communications plans. They've identified what their need and opportunity is. They've tied it to their business goals. They've done their research to understand what the issues are. They have segmented their audience and thought not only what are the messages that they need to use to connect and reach their audiences, but what are the best tools to make that happen. They also recognize what might be barriers or issues that could interfere, some which you can control and some which you cannot. A Gold Quill Award that I won, we actually had to face the fact that a lot of our samples were destroyed by a hurricane because we were looking for lead in people's fruits and vegetables that they grew in their backyards in areas that historically had used coal for fuel purposes. And then you want to be sure that people have very clear goals and objectives that are measurable and that it's tied when they report on their evaluation and their measurement tools that they're linked. So if they say they're going to achieve X by Y through Z, then what's reported in the evaluation and the measurement actually is aligned that they report and say, yes, we said we would do X, Y, and we did achieve Z, and this is how we know that we succeeded. People who 
there's a lot of creativity out there. I mean, it's amazing the stuff that people come up with and some with very little money and some with lots of money because that's the reality. But if you don't have a clear plan that particularly is specific about your goals and objectives tied to your business need and opportunity, and you don't have an effective evaluation plan, it becomes very evident that you're really good at the creative component, but you're not very advanced or have been able to present or share the strategic component of the tools that you've identified and how you understand your audiences. So to me, people who have a really well-designed, well-thought communication plan, which builds in an effective measurement approach, often are the ones that stand out for me because they clearly understand that link. You're not just really good delivery people. You're able to connect and understand why and how people then used what you gave them yeah. to change a behavior or adopt an opinion or whatever. Yeah. Well, something else I wanted to ask you about is you've been a fellow, IBC fellow since 2019. And I guess you're just for listeners and just to know a little bit more about the fellows program, but how have you been able to collaborate and connect with other fellows? And I know it's a, you know, it's a group of folks that have done amazing work in their careers and continue to do amazing work. But yeah, if you could just say a little bit about that, especially as we come up on, you know, trying to leave, there's an open call right now for the next cohort of fellows. So I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that. Okay, well, I guess the beauty of IBC is that you are able to connect with all kinds of people, you know, fellows and members alike, which I think is something that I value about IBC in terms of, you know, sometimes other organizations, fellows can be seen as unapproachable for whatever reason. People think, oh, well, they're a fellow and I can't really talk to them. Whereas I never felt that in IBC. I thought like, oh, cool, you know, I'm talking to a fellow and I can avail of their knowledge and expertise. But I also knew lots of great people doing wonderful work. And I could say, hey, cool, I can talk to this person and avail of their knowledge and expertise. What I have found being in the company of fellows is that we are a group of people who are committed to excellence not just in terms of our own organizations or clients, but also IABC and communications globally. And to me, that's really important, especially in the times that we're living in where misinformation, false information can be so easily distributed and everyone's competing. So to be able to have a group of people who are paying attention and listening and sharing information that you can ask, oh, you know, what's happening in your neck of the woods about this particular issue? It's a network at a different level, which to me, I think is really important. The other thing is that there's lots of opportunities to collaborate. And so most recently in Canada, myself and Sue Human embarked on a process with Anna Willey, both of whom are fellows, to revitalize the Master Communicator Award, which is now part of the IABC group or collection, can't think of the word to use now, for recognition of excellence. And to me, being able to work with Sue and Anna for something that is really important to us in Canada, but also to create opportunities where similar programs can recognize individuals in their regions or countries globally to be able to adopt a similar program. The opportunity there is really huge. And also to build on that, then the company of fellows in terms of what are the opportunities to give back and to share knowledge. And so 
with Shell Holtz, the circle of fellows being able to come together, various fellows once a month to discuss particular issues in depth allows us to share those different perspectives from different parts of the world and also sometimes to look at issues from different standpoints, from an NGO or a corporate perspective or government perspective that there's, you know, creates a body of knowledge. There's this concept that I've heard of and I've seen people use in terms of a human library. And so often organizations will identify different people and then you can come and chat with them and they're seen as like a living book of information about something that you might want to investigate or think about. And to me, the fellows is, is very much like that, a human library of different life experiences, different areas that we've worked in and made significant achievements depending on what you're doing. And it's not, you know, about how many awards that you've won or how many times that you've presented at a conference. It's really about what you're trying to achieve as a communicator, how you pursue excellence, how you live up to the ideals of an IABC member with the code of ethics, which I think is really important, that the fellows are a group that are help carrying that standard forward. And also giving back by mentoring and supporting others who wish to pursue those same goals and ideals in terms of communications excellence. For people that are interested in or aspire to become a fellow, what advice do you have for them? I know there's a lot of rigor in the process, but what's your advice for folks? The thing that I would advise people to think about is the impact they're making. What difference is their work making on the ground and how do they know it? So being able to identify the change or the action that you've contributed to and how did you know that it was your action that prompted that change going forward. Also, I think it's important to think about various creative approaches that people have embarked upon. So people who embrace learning and adopting different strategies and techniques, and you can see how they evolve their toolbox, how they also participate in learning and networking, and also how they contribute to IABC, the different roles. I have found my own volunteer work with IABC very enriching because A, I get to meet new people, And B, I have an opportunity to work on different projects that help push the goals of the organization further. So, you know, the work we did with Master Communicator was particularly important in that front. So the kinds of things that you do to support your chapter or your region is important to highlight because we're looking for people who are well-rounded, who have different experiences, or even if you participate in one sector, how did you grow your expertise and your knowledge so that you're seen as someone who has great value as part of the human library on X or Y issue? You know, it could be you worked all the time in one organization, but you've achieved huge things with internal communications and then taken that knowledge and help support other organizations, in their efforts around internal comms or DE&I or what have you, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Well, I would just encourage anyone that's listening, if they are interested in the Fellows Program, Martha, who should they reach out to? I, I reach out to you? 
they can certainly send me an email through IABC and I'm happy to talk to anyone who would like to know more. We do have quite a comprehensive nomination guide for people, but you know, we're always improving and tweaking the information we include in that document. So if something is unclear or people are confused, they can certainly contact me. I'm quite reachable. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Martha Mazetchka in the IABC database. So <laughs> yeah. I encourage people to follow up indeed. Great. You know, question for you, just going, you know, it's crazy that it's like less than two months to 2024, but what are you keeping a pulse on for next year? What are the things that are uh, kind of top of mind as we approach 2024? I think that we're still looking at how people approach mental health in the workplace. There's still a lot of stigma, but I'm hearing and seeing more, not just from people in communications, because there was the pandemic, certainly the first year was incredibly stressful. You know, you had work from home, you had challenges in terms of pandemic restrictions, then you had the need to get access to certain tools and so on. But I think that what we're seeing is that work-life balance is becoming top of mind. A lot of people became incredibly productive when they were working from home. They didn't have a two-hour commute. They didn't necessarily get drawn into coffee pot chatter or water cooler discussions and also because they could balance and say, right, you know, I'll get up at six and work until eight, then I'll get the kids ready for school, then I'll go, you know, so being able to chunk up their time with more freedom, I think showed people that there was a lot of different ways we could do things differently in terms of how work got done. And then managing those expectations as people move into a post-pandemic phase while still juggling some significant issues on that front. You know, COVID is not gone. We still have to contend with things like the flu. We have to look at RSV in children, which also affects adults. How we look at communicable diseases. Can we prevent a future pandemic with the knowledge that we gained so mental health and public health, I think in terms of how we function in workplaces, how we see sick days, for example, this idea of powering through, having that flexibility, I think is a big issue. And I think in different ways, reputation continues to evolve, how to assess your reputational risk, how you respond, how do you make yourselves approachable and also flexible in responding to those issues. And anticipating, and you know what's not going to go away is going to be issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're seeing huge strides in many areas, but we're also seeing a lot of pushback. It's not comfortable work. I had a friend who said, if it's not comfortable, you're doing it wrong. So the discomfort tells you that, you know, you're going to have to grow and process and think about your own role and not just your organization's role in terms of issues around discrimination, oppression and exclusion based on racism, sexism and homophobia and the whole gamut there. So we're seeing that understanding of those political issues is actually a workplace issue because you can't divorce them. And so that can be a struggle in some workplaces that are used to having a very clear focus on what the business goal is to produce X widgets for X price and distribute to Y points worldwide versus there are human people. They have to deal with issues. There's going to be emotions. There's going to be challenges. 
people will need to educate themselves and be educated about these issues. So to me, reputation, work-life balance, and mental health, those are things that I see that the organizations I work with are focusing on because the pressure to do more with less creates its own stress and can lead to lack of access and the elimination of resources and supports at the community, which sometimes aren't seen as part of what governments and even corporations are responsible for. So I think if I had to sum it all up, we have to do better and be kinder. And how our communications flows from that, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah. Well, it's curious to kind of follow up on your comment about reputation. I mean, are are there things that you're seeing as sort of common missteps, you know, just and even within the last four or five years that organizations are, is there a theme there in terms of reputation where organizations can be better? Yes. Well, you know, some people collect stamps. I collect apologies because I like to see how people phrase their apologies. Mm-hmm. And if there's three things that I would say to people, the first thing is to say, you're sorry without any qualification or conditions. Don't say, I'm sorry if I offended you. If I'm complaining to you, Peter, I was offended. There's no ifs about it, right? Yeah. So don't qualify your apology because it comes across as insincere. The second thing is to own it and to recognize that you did wrong. And you know what? We all mess up. Acknowledge that you did, and then identify how you're going to prevent that from happening in the future. I'm sorry I said that thing. I recognize that I hurt you when I said that thing. Don't say you didn't intend to say, I realize I need to learn more so that I don't say things like that in the future. I intend to educate myself on this issue. And here's a practice that we're going to change so other people don't say those same kind of things. To me, it's your actual contrition, the no qualifying or hedging about it. It's owning the situation and then demonstrating your clear commitment to change in the future. The best apologies are the ones that say, yeah, I messed up big time. I'm really sorry because I recognize I hurt you as a result of that. And here's how I'm going to do better in the future. And, you know, don't offer an excuse that you didn't mean to or, you know, you forgot to read that page in the manual or whatever. You know, just own it and move on. Because the thing that derails all the apologies that have failed is the defensiveness that people bring to it. Because you want to say, really, I'm a good person. You know what? Yeah, you messed up. I'm not going to say that you're a bad person. What happens after in your reaction is going to tell me whether or not you intend to be a better person in the future. It's like the gold quill. You know, we start off at four and you move up or you move down depending. I will always endeavor to give people the benefit of the doubt. But if you qualify and you hedge and you try to put in some kind of, you know, waffly statements around what you intend to do, it's not going to work. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe kind of along those lines, but I was curious what you're thinking is around, you know, when organizations should speak out on a certain issue, you know, because I think that maybe organizations struggle with that. And that could be internally and externally, whether it's talking about a certain current event to their employees or, you know, speaking out about something. But I want to see what your perspective is on that, you know, as being part of your reputation. Like, so when do you speak out and when is it probably best not to be maybe in the in the middle of an issue? 
I think it's important for organizations to recognize when they have to speak out and when they have to stay in their own lane. The way that you learn how to do that is by listening to what people are saying in those different communities and start listening to your employees or your clients or your members because they are those communities. You know, they don't come to work and they are a widget operator for point A. Right. It could be Joe Dawson from Cincinnati who grew up in a housing project and has lived experience of food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So you got to recognize that your employees care about those issues and they're going to carry that into their workplace. And it matters a great deal to people that when something is very wrong, that people stand up and speak. At the same time, I think it's important that people recognize that the issues are very complex and they should be listening to the leaders in those communities. So if you're trying to support issues for Black Americans, Black Canadians, if you're looking to support Indigenous issues, go to the communities and work collaboratively with them. Don't just go and, you know, carry away all the information because that's just as bad. It's, it's just another colonialist approach in terms of taking resources and knowledge and, and not giving back appropriately. So I think you have to be aware and on top of the issues. And often when I hear people say, oh, well, we don't know what to say, it's because they haven't been listening. And so you need to set up those channels internally and externally to understand what people are saying and what's happening. To me, it becomes fairly obvious when you have to speak, when something is so outrageous, you need to do something or you want to encourage people to take a step in terms of action. A lot of issues people get worried about, I think, aren't necessarily that concerning. I mean, if you say to people, I think it's really important as an organization that we support democracy and you know, you need to take two hours to go vote at lunchtime, we're going to support that participation. Other organizations may see that as perhaps something truly off the roadmap that shouldn't even be put on the table to be considered. So it's unique to different organizations. And which is why I think when we look at corporate social responsibility, that's a really great step forward to become informed and to look at how your organization is part of a community and how you can support and create the spaces where people can thrive in that community. And their employees are also part of that community or communities, depending on identity and location. I, you know, communities not just about geography. Mm-hmm. Community is about the space where you come together with people who share your values, your culture, your religion, your political perspectives, and how you can make the best things happen for mm-hmm. where you live and work and play, not just the work part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I only have one more question for you. We ask every guest, what gets you up in the morning? What gets me up in the morning is what's next. And I have to say, Every time I get up on this side of the ground, I already start feeling that it's a really good day. So the fact that I get to get up, work with some amazing people, do some really cool stuff and offer my skills both for compensation and for voluntary good vibes is important to me. 
I think that whole approach of leaving or making something better than you found it mm-hmm. is something that makes me keep going. Yeah. Well, Martha, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. It was really interesting. And yeah, you know, it's always good when you get good questions to think about. Thanks so much to Martha. Great conversation. Loved hearing her insights about the profession. And again, the nominations process is open for fellows. And thanks so much for listening.